Do we need a new definition of cardiac death when it involves pediatric heart transplants? Welcome to Ethics and Medicine on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Armin Antamaria, Assistant Professor in the Division of Pediatric Inpatient Medicine an adjunct assistant professor in the Division of Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Antamaria. Oh, thank you for your invitation. On August 14th of this year, the New England Journal of Medicine published an article by Dr. M. M. Busek. In it, he describes three cases that underwent cardiac transplantation. The recipients averaged 2.2 months and now have survived at least 3.5 years, and the donors were the average of 3.7 days that had undergone devastating neurologic injury. Their surrogates were all in favor of transplantation and their being a donor. The controversy in this article has arisen about the period of asystole between the onset of asystole and the beginning of the transplant. The initial case was three minutes, and the next two cases averaged about 1.25 minutes of asystole before they were pronounced dead. What in this article has caused such controversy? I think that there are two main issues in this article. One is whether or not it's ever appropriate to transplant hearts from children who are declared dead according to cardiovascular criteria. And if it is ever appropriate, how long of a period of asystole or meeting the criteria for death one has to observe before declaring death? Well, do we have a definition of what is called cardiac death that we can use? So as in many areas, this is an active area of controversy. So when donation after cardiac death processes were initially proposed, there was substantial criticism um, that patients who met this criteria weren't actually dead. Would it be worth it to talk in general about what the donation after cardiac death or DCD process is? Yes, I think that would be fine. For many of our listeners, we're not aware of it. So the donation after cardiac death process is that a patient's surrogates have made the decision to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatment. And it's anticipated that after this life-sustaining treatment is discontinued, that the patient will die within a finite period of time, typically 60 to 90 minutes. And the patient's family then is approached to consent for organ donation. And if they do consent, then typically the patient is taken to an operating room where they are potentially prepped and draped and cannula are inserted, life-sustaining treatment is withdrawn, the family potentially says their goodbyes, death is declared, and then organ donation occurs. The initial controversy about whether or not these patients were dead centered around whether or not the cessation of cardiac and respiratory activity was irreversible. That's a very good point. I mean, the person becomes asystolic, and there apparently has been no reported cases where the heart starts again after 60 seconds unless CPR is used. So isn't it, in fact, if you wait two minutes, isn't it irreversible? The surrogate doesn't want you to use CPR. The heart is stopped. Isn't this irreversible? 
And so some people have argued that it's not irreversible because you could do CPR and restart the heart, where other people would say that because the surrogate or family has decided not to use CPR in this case, that it is, in fact, irreversible. And the general consensus has been that given the decision not to use CPR, it is irreversible and these individuals can become donors. And then the question is, well, how long do you have to wait for irreversibility? Do you think it's enough to say that since there's been no case that the heart has started on its own after 60 seconds, that's enough scientific evidence and data to support the irreversibility of this? And I think that that's part of the question. So, The database on which the 60 or 65 seconds is based is relatively small. So DaVita, who has the kind of most comprehensive review of this, has an N of about 109 patients. And so part of the question is, you know, with 109 patients, how big is your confidence interval? You know, how certain are you if the longest time we know of was 65 if you had another 100 or 500 patients, that one of them's not going to go out to 70 or 75 seconds. I keep coming back to the fact that we have three live children and three deceased children where without these transplants, we certainly would have had six deceased children. All the ethical vectors seem to be pointing in the direction of doing this type of surgery. The surrogate is in favor of it. The donor is certainly not going to survive, and we get a live, healthy child out of it. Are we being seduced by this? Are we changing the rules in order to help our own selves work this problem through? And I think that that's one of the really complicated issues in donation after cardiac death is that there are a number of conflicts of interest. And part of the question is whether or not we're being inappropriately pushed to increase the number of transplantable organs in order to benefit recipients and in some way harming donors. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Ethics in Medicine on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Armin Antamaria, Assistant Professor in the Division of Pediatric Inpatient Medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine, and we're talking about the controversy that exists now about short periods of asystole in order to prevent warm ischemia from taking place in pediatric cardiac transplants. Well, we know that 25% of all infants waiting for hearts will die, and this is 10 times as many as will exist in an adult population. Should this in any way influence us? I would agree that it potentially should influence us in ways to potentially identify more appropriate donors and to provide palliative care and emotional support recognizing that it may never be possible to have sufficient numbers of donors. But the question is, when you kind of cross over from harming potential donors while seeking to benefit recipients. I should mention in the New England Journal article that I referred to, there are at least four other articles dealing with this particular central article. And one of the commentaries said we should just focus on consent of the surrogate and the prognosis. And we have to step forward that in every breakthrough in medicine, sometimes something has to be done to change our focus. 
In other words, I think he almost looks at looking at the body as an integrated system rather than a collection of organs. And therefore, if we think only about consent and the prognosis, we would move in this direction. How would you respond to that? As a background statement, I would congratulate the New England Journal of Medicine for providing a rich discussion of the issues surrounding this main paper by the group at Denver Children's. And there are a number of potential alternatives outlined by the respondents. The potential alternative of the current situation, which would be potentially not recovering hearts for transplantation. And the main commentators, Veach, Trug, and Miller, all seem to find that unacceptable. And Trug and Miller do emphasize, as you've said, in obtaining valid informed consent. And part of the question is, you know, how broadly are they willing to take the legitimacy of informed consent? Because they're, in some point, willing to say that the dead donor rule, the rule that says that you don't recover organs from living persons becomes irrelevant. And in the beginning of bioethics, Paul Ramsey presented the speculative case of a parent who wanted to donate his heart to his child. And part of the question is, if it only hinges on consent, what stops a parent who's not in the process of dying from saying, I'm willing to give up my heart to my child, knowing that it will result in my death? We see that in directed donors, people coming forward who are directed donors and often have psychiatric problems or depressive problems that have to be evaluated. And I think one of the commentators addressed this, that there has to be that kind of safeguard to prevent that. Do you think that if we change our criteria, that we're in danger of losing the public trust? Part of the question is whether or not we actually need to change the criteria. Because the heart is restarted in another body, that allows us to maintain the current criteria. If you look at the human body as an integrated system, once the donor has stopped breathing and their heart has stopped beating and a sufficient time has elapsed to prevent auto-resuscitation, they're dead and that the fact that their heart can be restarted in another system may not, in fact, violate the rule requiring irreversibility. So although none of the commentators discussed it, part of the question is whether or not what's being done actually undermines or violates the current rules, including the dead donor rule. Yes, because some people have come forward and said, we're actually ending life by organ removal, which would be certainly going in a different direction, which you've just suggested. How do you respond to somebody who says, you know, you're ending life by organ removal and you're being motivated by a transplant service? My response would be that, in fact, you're removing all of the organs, including the heart or the liver or the kidneys, after the patient is dead and that transplanting the liver or the kidneys doesn't kill the patient. So that I think that potentially it's a misunderstanding, but I agree that there's a fundamental issue of the public trust and whether or not there's widespread either public consensus or social understanding that what's happening is appropriate 
or whether there's going to be a public reaction to this, which undermines public support for organ transplantation. You know, today we've been discussing a new advancement, certainly an attempt by the people in Denver to move forward and to provide more donors for cardiac donation. We still haven't answered it, and there's still a tension and an angst that exists in our medical community. But certainly there are three babies now, three and a half years old, that are alive that wouldn't have been alive unless they had moved forward. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Armin Antamaria, who's been our guest today, and you've been listening to Ethics in Medicine on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.